Thank you, Lord, for this time. Just give you glory and praise. Lord, speak through me. Let me not be a distraction to what you want to speak to your people, Lord. Amen. Amen. So, last week was Easter, so we, didn't, we weren't going through 1 Samuel, and I think in a minute you'll see why. But up until this point, we've been going through first, first service, people laughed. Yeah. Okay, so uh, up until this point, we've been going through the, uh, the book of Samuel. So I'm going to catch you up. So there's this King Saul. King Saul was uh, anointed through the prophet Samuel to be the king over Israel. Israel wanted a king. They said, no, 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 God's not good enough. We want a king. So through the prophet Samuel, God gave them King Saul. But since then, he's turned into a selfish, fearful, and cowardly man who no longer serves God but only himself. That's his legacy. What's your legacy? Uh, the Spirit of the Lord has... Le- <laughs> uh, I'm not going to make you tell me what it is. I'm just, just saying, like, reflection time. Like, when I come up here and I'm preaching, I'm not just trying to vent. I'm trying to get you to reflect on what you think and what you do and how you live and how you spend your time so you walk out of here and you change. What good would it be if I just inspired you if I didn't inspire you to change, right? Okay. Now, the Spirit of the Lord has left Saul, and a young boy named David has been chosen to be, uh, by Samuel to be the next king. But he stays humble about it, and he continues to do his job shepherding in the flocks of the fields. You might remember this from the past few weeks. Now, when Israel army, Israel's army is confronted by the enemy Goliath and the Philistines, everyone, including uh, Saul, is greatly afraid, and Saul makes a deal with anyone who would be brave enough to kill Goliath. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 25. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. So David, of course, is the one who kills Goliath. An interesting note, which you probably remember, is that it's not like David was standing there with the armies of Israel as they shook in fear. He comes up from the fields with the sheep and is like, seriously, you guys are going to let this guy talk bad about the guy? of Israel, someone's going to do something about it, and it's a little boy, King David. It's a great story. A couple sermons ago, uh, listened to it online. Uh, cowardly Saul, and, and so from that point where David kills Goliath to this point that we're at currently, we see that King Saul keeps sending David into battle to fight his battles for him. So King Saul is no longer leading his army, essentially. He's back at home, sitting on the throne, listening to all the stories of uh, David, not King David yet, but David coming back, having won all the victories in his name. And so that's the point we see now. Uh, And (laughs) so since he's doing all these things, now we see that um, David's getting uh, recognized by the people for his courage and his, his wins. So now King Saul wants him dead. Because like what we talked about two weeks ago is that David's making King Saul look bad now. Because, not on purpose, but that's just the way it is. When somebody's living righteously for Christ and you have somebody else who's supposed to be for God and they're not living righteously, they're going to be kind of embarrassed and called out. So that's what we see here. I was thinking of through this section of scripture I was preparing for it. I was thinking about, have you ever had a boss or a family member or someone you trusted who treated you unfairly? Like, not me. I got great bosses. Like, no one could have better bosses than me. But I'm just saying, like, in the past, I've had, <laughs> I've had bosses that aren't so great. Uh, I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, and maybe if you were in the military, you had a similar experience. I remember when I was at Motor T School in the Marine Corps, uh, you couldn't do anything right. 
it, it really didn't matter what you did. You couldn't do anything right. They would always find something to criticize you for. They would keep us in the um, barracks, cleaning the barracks uh, for hours. Hours and hours and hours. And then after uh, a couple hours, they would come in and expect, inspect. And it didn't matter how good you had done. They would uh, say it wasn't good enough. And then they would walk out. And then they'd come back a couple hours later. Well, of course, we figured this out. So if I'm being honest, which I want to be, uh, they would inspect, say it's not good enough, and leave. And we would just stand there and talk for a couple hours until they came back. And then they would come back and say it was good enough. Or sometimes they'd come back and knock something over or, or dump something in the toilet. So you have to re-clean everything. Oh, you know, look at this. So you just spit your chew out of my toilet. It was clean. Now I'm just, you know, offended. But anyways, my point is, I know what it's like when you have someone in authority over you who you can't please and you cannot do anything right with. I'm sure some of you have a boss at work right now that you're like, oh yeah, that guy, he's never satisfied with anything. We don't like to be treated that way. But as we look at the scriptures today, we see that even though sometimes the people in earthly authority over us treat us how they were treated, which doesn't get you any better production, We need to treat people how we want to be treated. Um, So let's look at the scripture this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 18, 17 through 30. 1 Samuel chapter 18, 17 through 30. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, "Let uh, Let my hand not be against him. But let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life or my father's uh, family in Israel that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But it happened that at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adril, the Mehethite, uh, as a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants to communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delighted in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore, become the king's son-in-law. It's interesting at this point that when, it, when King Saul is trying to coax David into doing more for him, he, he coaxes him in by giving him praise. Like, oh, you're great. People love you. I want you as my son-in-law. But he does it in private. Because he's so selfish and prideful, he's afraid that if he praises David in public, then people might believe it. But he doesn't mean it. He's just trying to goat David into doing what he wants. So Saul's servants spoke these words uh, in the hearing of David. And David said, does it, seem, does it seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing as I am poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, in this manner David spoke. Then Saul says, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. That's the third time in this section of scripture that we've said that. 
uh, thistlings. So verse 26. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David. It pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Now in these day, uh, now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. What has he been up to this point? (laughs) Intermittently? Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So, what's the deal, man? Like, what's the deal with Saul? What's the deal he's trying to make with David? It's a little unclear. It's a little shaky. When I was thinking about this section of scripture, how Saul would wave these things in David's face, trying to bait him into doing something for him and then pull it back. You know, I don't know if he was trying to get David to act rashly, to freak out or something like that. But it reminded me of, of when Lucy used to pull the football away from Charlie Brown when he would come up and try to kick it. I had that picture in my head of, of her holding the ball down, like, come on, Charlie Brown, kick the football. And he's like, ah, oh, I don't really want to. She's like, no, 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 I promise. This time, I won't move it. I won't. I'll hold it there, I promise you. And he's like, no, nah, I don't think so. She's like, just kick the ball, Charlie Brown. He's like, okay. And he comes up to kick it. And every time, up in the air, flat on his back. Every time. And she just laughs at him. And I think that's kind of what Saul's coaxing David into doing here is that he's holding the reward and the prize out for him. And then as soon as he does what's expected, does what's asked, Saul pulls away the football again. And but I was thinking about this because, and maybe you've considered this too, but I considered why does Charlie Brown keep trying to kick the football? She just pulled it away again. And I was thinking the reason why she keeps, he keeps trying to kick the football is because Lucy's supposed to be his friend. And since, since Lucy is a friend, he believes her and he finally trusts her again and then she betrays his trust again. That's why it's so difficult when somebody's supposed to be on your side, when someone's supposed to be fighting for you and taking care of you, why it's so hard and feels like such a betrayal when they don't. And that's what we're seeing here in the scripture. Uh, Verse 17, uh, then Saul says to David, here is my oldest daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me. And fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Wasn't she already supposed to be given as his wife? What was that whole Goliath thing about? I mean, what's the deal Saul's trying to make? First, he's like, hey, I'll give you my daughter if you kill Goliath. Then he's like, no, 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 no. I'll actually give you my daughter if you will just fight my battles for me. Fight his battles for him? What has he been doing the whole time? He's been fighting his battles for him the whole time. I'm not sure what Saul's expecting here. But Saul simply just wants to get David killed. He wants to do the whole, I didn't kill him. The Philistines killed him. While continuing to send him in a hard way. And you know, I didn't say this for service, but it's interesting that 
Saul is trying to send David against his enemies to be killed so he can plausible deniability, I didn't do it. But then when we see in the future when King David takes Bathsheba, he tries to send Uriah, I think is his name, into battle to be killed so he could do the same thing. Dang it! That's tragic. There's no perfect people in the Bible except for Jesus. Okay. Cowardly Saul continues to send courageous David to win his battles for him, but he just wants to get him killed. Verse 21. So Saul said, I will give her to you, the second daughter, to him, uh, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. So first he makes a deal with the first daughter, gives her to somebody else. Now he's trying to wave the second daughter uh, in front of David. But it's interesting that he is willing to sacrifice the honor of his own daughter to become a snare to David. How much more is this guy going to just compromise his values? King Saul... Again, he's trying to bait him, I guess, into trusting him. Or maybe he's trying to bait him into getting upset and angry with what Saul's doing. Demand his rights. Maybe he's baiting David into coming before the people to try to convince them. Like, who, look how bad Saul is and how he keeps offending me and not doing what he says he's going to do. I'm not really sure, but good grief, man. How many times is this thing going to happen? David has to do twice as much. He, he chooses to do twice as much than he is asked to do. But I think in this section of scripture, I think what really stood out to me the most, the most is David's reaction to the unfair treatment he's receiving. I think that's kind of the theme that kind of comes out of this portion. It's interesting when you preach through the Bible verse by verse and line by line, what ends up coming up in your verses when you need to preach. And I remember talking to Pastor Matt two weeks ago. I said, hey, man, what are you going to preach? And he's like, I really want to preach Saul, uh, um, First Samuel on Easter, but I'm having a really, really hard time connecting the verses to an Easter message. I'm like, great, well, leave them for me. <laughs> but what we see David do in his reaction to this unfair treatment he's receiving, definitely unfair treatment, no doubt, David stays humble. In verse 18, uh, it says, So David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? He's already been uh, prophesied by Samuel that he will eventually be the king. This seems like a good pathway to get there, married into the family. He's already been promised Saul's daughter, yet he still has the attitude of, Who am I? Who am I to demand these rights? Who am I to have these things? He still has a humble approach to the situation. In verse 23, we see that David says, I am a poor and lightly esteemed man. This, after he's been prophesied the king, fought the king's battles. Remember, we just heard before, when they came back from battle, the, the women were singing and dancing, saying, hey, Saul, uh, King Saul killed thousands, but David killed ten thousands. And he's still considering himself lightly esteemed. That's humility. Um, we see David in his own words in uh, Psalms chapter 25, verse 9. He says, The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his ways. I think it's always so awesome and amazing uh, when you see someone's words match up with their actions. And why is that awesome and amazing? I don't know. Is it just me, or is that an uncommon occurrence in our day and age? We see it in leadership. I've seen it in leadership uh, growing up. I've had leaders in the past that do this. We see it in politicians. We've just grown accustomed to the fact that what they say isn't going to match up with what their actions are. 
And so it's interesting to see in the Bible here where we see what uh, David says when he is uh, currently trying to escape from Saul's grasp, saying these things about being humble and uh, being guided to justice by the Lord. Um, and we see it in his actions too in the scriptures. Uh, first, uh, first Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Very directed and applicable scripture right here. Talking about humbling yourself before God. And letting God be uh, the justifier. Letting God be the one who uh, raises you up in due time. We see this in David's life. Not demanding his rights right now. But expecting and knowing that God will raise him up when the time comes. And until then, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Right? So David stays humble. But another thing I noticed is David chose not to get mad or be offended. And if you come on Wednesdays, you know I talked about uh, our culture of offense a little bit on a Wednesday. If you don't come to Wednesdays, come. It's awesome. Good preaching. Uh, But we see in this scripture, we don't see any description of David being offended or demanding his rights or what he was owed. But we live in this culture of offense that is constantly demanding its rights. And now what's interesting is that the culture today is looking for ways to be offended. They're looking for it. They're actively going out and searching for ways to be offended. And if anything is just the slightly off, slightly off any mistake, anything, they're going to latch onto it and rail about it. And I can't believe this is happening to me. And yeah, we kind of expect that from people. That's the direction we're going. But I think that's what's the, the biggest challenge to me, or for me, is that, that the American Christian church has decided to jump on board and pursue offense as well. And I don't know what your Facebook feed looks like, but my Facebook feed looks like people searching the internet for things that are offensive and then throwing it up and saying, oh, wait, culture, you're offended by my Christian beliefs? I'm even more offended by how you're treating us. I'm about to kick over an apple cart and step on some toes. The biggest thing I noticed this week was how Christians are losing their minds over the fact that the mainstream media and liberals and politicians are calling the people who died in Sri Lanka Easter worshipers instead of Christians. They're Christians. I can't believe you wouldn't recognize that. We're not Easter worshipers. We're Christians. I think there was one day where we were shocked and, and, and offended and taken back by the fact that so many people got killed in churches in Sri Lanka, and the last six days have been nothing but worrying about what they called the people who got killed. Who cares if they call them Easter worshipers? You should be focused on the people who lost their lives and praying for the families and, and praying that that stuff doesn't make it here. Why are we so worked up about them justifying us in our beliefs and what we want to be called? Because we're offended. We're offended by it. We've become obsessed as Christians to the point uh, to point out all the failures and, hypo- and hypocrisies of everyone else. We're losing sight of the goal, which is to be showing them Jesus. Amen. Now, let me tell you something about the unsaved. When you argue with other Christians, it turns them off and makes them want to go away. How do I know? 
because I've read the comments. They're saying, why do I want to be a part of this group that are a bunch of hypocrites that just fight with each other? They don't want any part of that. You are not showing them Jesus by being righteously justified about what the liberals are doing in the media. No one's coming to Christ because how upset you are about how they're being treated. They do not care. They just don't care. And if our goal is to be bringing people to Christ, if our goal is to be reflecting who Christ is, we're failing. We're just failing. And what's interesting too, I'm in a, hey, listen, I'm in the group too, right? Because I spend many a night coming home to my wife and being uh, complaining and being offended about how everybody else is offended. That's my biggest offense. My biggest offense is pointing out how, look, did you see what so-and-so said? Look how offended they are. I'm offended that they're offended. I understand what it's like. I'm in the group. I'm just saying that when we look at what David did, David isn't sitting around with his armor bearer or with his people talking about how offended he is about King Saul treating him. That's what we're doing. If we're going to learn from this example, we should probably be doing what David's doing. The, the media isn't the place you want to be justified anyway. The media is the place where there's, a no, there's no winning for a Christian in the media. Absolutely not. Because you get someone like, let's say, a Christian music artist or any Christian at all in entertainment. They're in an interview. The interviewer is asking them questions to try to get them to say something offensive to everybody who's listening. They're going to make them take a hard stand on their faith. So when they take a hard stand and say, the Bible is the unadulterated word of God, and I live up to that, and sin is not right, the whole entire media is going to crucify them for it. But if they're soft, if they omit stuff, or if they act lukewarm, all you Christians are going to crucify them. You're going to blast them on your faith. It got quiet on that one. You're going to blast them on your newsfeed. You say, I'm never buying their album again. You're going to say, I knew it. I never thought they were whoever. That's what we do. So why? What? So it's a no win. It's a no win. Whew. All right. Off my soapbox. God is big enough to fight our battles. That's what it comes down to. God is big enough to fight your battles. You don't have to sit back and worry about how somebody who's uh, influenced by this world or by the devil is going to derail God's plans in your life. You don't have to worry about that. They can't do it. God's plans will come to fruition. His promises will come true unless you want to go off off the handle being righteously uh, indignant about uh, the injustices and uh, discredit what God's trying to do in your life. You can derail that. But they're not going to derail it. So let God fight those battles for you. We see in verse 28 and 30 here, Saul says, uh, it says that Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. David still ends up the son of the king. He still ends up marrying a princess. He's still wiser than all Saul's men, Saul's men and he's still highly esteemed without claiming all those rights. God said, I have found David, uh, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. If, if you want to be found as a Christian after God's own heart, then you should probably be doing the same kind of things David's doing. Maybe that's, the, that's kind of the point that bubbles up in these scriptures today. David expected a greater reward. We teach the men at Faith and Victory Church the biblical definition of manhood. Don't embarrass me this morning, men. What is rally? What's the definition of manhood? What's the first one? Listen, if you're going to reject passivity, you better say it like you mean it. Reject passivity. What's the next one? And the next one? That's right. Thank you for not embarrassing me today. 
It's on the back of your coin, right? That you get at the men's advance, right? Women, that's what we're teaching your men. That's what your husband's aspiring to. Why don't you give him a chance to do it? <gasps> I'm just saying. Okay, all right. I'm a little fiery this service. First service I was holding back, this service I'm letting it go. I'd only bring it up because what we see in this uh, section of scripture is David doing these things. He's not being passive. He's taking responsibility. He, even though the king will not lead his own armies into battle, David's doing it. He's leading courageously, in, uh, courageously. And right now we see him expecting a greater reward than what King David's going to give him. Because real men, real men and women, you don't measure your worth by earthly accomplishments, but by your eternal destiny. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. If your mindset is one of serving the Lord, then you won't be upset or mad when you don't get recognized for your accomplishments. When you don't get that promotion, uh, when you don't get that certificate, I mean, we've kind of, at least probably from about my generation all is on, has been kind of a culture of everyone gets a trophy. I always hated getting participation awards. It just, it didn't seem like I should get rewarded for showing up. It seems like that's the bare minimum, right? But we kind of bring that attitude into our uh, service of Christ and we expect that someone's going to recognize us and reward us. But if our focus is on just serving Christ and knowing that our reward is an eternal reward that comes from God, we won't find ourselves getting so frustrated and annoyed and, and offended by not receiving the praise of men. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 58, therefore my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain for the Lord. The great reward is is seeing souls saved. Eternal life in heaven is in like Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Don't we see that lived out in David's life? He was faithful with the few things that he was allowed to have, and he became uh, the, the, the biggest uh, king in all of Israel and all of history. David did more than what was required because he knew there was more on the line than just appeasing Saul's requests. He expected a greater reward because he knew that God's promises do not change. God's promises don't change. God told David through the prophet Samuel that he would one day be king. David trusted God enough to know that he didn't have to try to make it happen on his own strength. How many times do we say, God said I was going to do this, and then we set out and try to make it happen in our own strength. Now, you have an active role. I'm not saying you don't have an active role, but, but God has a plan. So if God says, nope, that's not part of your plan right now, I want you to uh, patiently wait on the Lord. I want you to wait for me to move. It's really difficult sometimes to say, yeah, but that's where I want to be. I'm sure David, especially suffering under Saul, 
had feelings like, but that's where I'm supposed to be. That's where I want to be. Why am I hiding in caves for 15 years waiting for this thing to happen? He had opportunity to kill King Saul, but he wouldn't do it. He respects authority because that's what God demands of him. And he's obedient to what God's called him to do. So he's sitting up in some cave somewhere waiting for this thing to happen, writing things like this. Psalms chapter 37, verse 7 and 8. These are David's words. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. So David is running for his life from the king that's supposed to love him and mentor him. He's hiding up in some cave. And he's saying, rest in the Lord and be patient and wait. But what's interesting about this verse here that I'm not really sure I've picked up on before is that in verse 8 he says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret, it only causes harm. Harm to who? Harm to you. You think you worrying and fretting about what somebody else, some wicked person's success is hurting them? They don't care. You think King Saul cared about how David felt? I'm pretty sure he didn't. So what, what perfect advice from the man who's living the situation right now as we're reading? Psalms 27 verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Worth repeating twice, right? <laughs> wait, I said, wait. Who do you think he's talking to? I think he's talking to his own heart. <laughs> Right? Who's he up there talking to? He's saying, just wait on the Lord and be courageous. He'll strengthen your heart. He's talking to us too. It's prophetic in that way. Psalms 18, verse 2 and 3. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, and him whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. David, in the midst of uh, this situation that I hope by now you're placing yourself in and thinking about your own thoughts and actions and ideas, is giving us this kind of advice. This is what's reassuring him and encouraging him through this whole thing. Resting in the Lord, leaning on the Lord to strengthen your heart. He is your rock. He is your fortress. We should be applying these truths to our lives. We should be looking at David as our example of how to walk through uh, trial, how to walk through people uh, trying to hold us back or treat us unfairly. When we're offended, we should reflect on how David acted and the words he said. Next time you're offended, sit down and read through the Psalms. Yeah. Think about that and you might be less offended. David was one after God's own heart. That's probably the example we should be following. You shouldn't be worrying about the unfair treatment of men. You should be focusing on the Lord. So as we sit here this morning, and, and hopefully you're reflecting on situations in your life. When, when I sit down to prepare a sermon, I, uh, I spend a lot of time reflecting on the scripture and what the Lord's trying to speak to me. But then I also have to spend time getting it right in my own heart, you know? Because how can I come up here and preach a sermon to you about what the scripture is telling you to do if I haven't already reflected and applied it to my own life? 
Like I said, though, before, it's not like I'm there. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you need to reflect on where you're at and where you need to be in order to move and change. If you don't see where that you should be somewhere else, then why would you ever move there? And the Bible is great because, honestly, I could tell you where you need to be, but if you're not thinking about where you're at, the map's not going to get you where you need to go. So, I got a minute, right? Quick story, okay. So I'm a firefighter, right? So uh, we have this one area that's way out in southeast, uh, south, uh, way out in East King County. And out in East King County, it gets kind of rural. And so uh, our map books look different now, but the way the map book was before, uh, before the new map books, I remember one time we were going to go on a call. And you get the address, and then you have the map book to look up the address, right? And I'm not even kidding you. I opened it up to the page I was supposed to be on, and there's one road that goes from one side of the page to the other side of the page, and that's where the call is. But here's the problem. Where does that road begin, and where does that road end? <laughs> I can see the address. I just don't know how to get from where I'm at to where that's at. But, you know, that's why you have senior experienced firefighters who just said, yeah, I know, how, I, I know how to get to that spot. And then after that, man, I went back home and I'm starting to just, I need to study this thing better because I didn't expect to run into a point in my life where I knew where the destination was, but I couldn't see the path to get there from where I was at. Right? And that's what the Bible does for you. That's why we keep saying, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. You can sit here for 45, 37 minutes and listen to me talk about it. But if you're not into your Bible every time when the call comes out and it's an emergency, you're not going to know how to get there. That was a freebie. I just thought of that. Why don't we stand up? Why don't we stand up and get ready to close here? Stand up and get ready to close. This morning, as we get ready to close, just bow your heads for me. I want to give you an opportunity that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to have an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we talk about the promises of God and the benefits of God and how David was able to rest in the Lord even under persecution, the reason why he could is because he had an intimate uh, relationship with God. He didn't just know about God, he knew God. And so this morning as we get ready to close, if you're in this place and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never had him, uh, you know, uh, confessed your sins to him and believed in him as the son of God, the only way of salvation going to heaven. If this is your first time and you've never given your life to Christ before, no better time, no better place, I want you to just raise your hand and I want you to walk up here so somebody can pray with you. This is your moment. This is it. A crowd full of loving people who love Jesus and just want to live life with you. If that's you in this place, I'm giving you a chance to come up here and we can pray with you and and join with you in this new life in Jesus Christ. Good. Now the other thing I want to say as we close this is I hope you had some time to reflect on where you're at. And some of us have uh, wandered in our lives and we've wandered away from the fire and grown a little bit cold. So in this place, as you sit here with your head down, if that's you and this morning you've realized you need to draw back into Christ, you need to change what you're doing now, repent and come back to the Lord, I want you to rededicate that in your heart right now. I want you to walk out of this place refreshed and renewed as a new person in Christ that he created you to be.
Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you for this morning, Lord God. I thank you for your, uh, your, your chance after chance that you give us, Lord God, and never giving up on us, Lord God. I pray that we could uh, take your word and, and meditate on it day and night and that it would change our lives, Lord God. I, I pray that you would allow it to change me, Lord Jesus. We love you and we glorify you above all else in this place in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Remember to get your kids downstairs. It's a great day to hang out in the parking lot and keep eyes on your kids and fellowship. Thanks for Thank you for watching the Faith and Victory live stream. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check us out online at faithandvictory.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and we'd love to connect with you there. If you'd like to financially support Faith and Victory Church's ministry, please text FAVC to 77977. God bless you and keep you. From the FVC Live Team.